This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Welcome to Body Talk. Today, we are going to talk to a scholar, writer, editor, educator, and artist with an interdisciplinary PhD that focuses on understanding and tracing the trajectory of ideas through time. And I think I might just have enough RAM to process this. She is also the daughter of an legacy holder of Leon Chaitao and the Chaitao Library. Her focus right now is on perceptions of scientific and medical knowledge and understanding how their evolution as bodies of knowledge can better inform our best practices as therapists, uh, healthcare givers, wherever you're at on that spectrum. Uh, welcome to Body Talk, Sasha Shetel. Lovely to be with you, David. I saw a recent article that you published, and the word that sparked my curiosity was one I had not seen in a long time, and it was vitalism. Indeed. As a medical concept. So um, why don't you explain vitalism from a medical point of view? Because we don't have that point of view anymore. Okay. So yes, vitalism has unfortunately become quite a dirty word in uh, modern medical circles. Um, but I'm interested in it as a concept. It refers to the idea and this idea has very ancient roots, that beyond what we see of the natural world or what we see of the physical body, there's this sort of invisible life force that permeates and pervades and connects all of it together. And that this somehow is the source of life itself and of health and healing. And this became the basis for medicine, medical practices in antiquity. The idea survived right up through to the Enlightenment, which is when it began to get a bad rap around the time that modern science was being born. It was seen as something more connected to spirituality, more connected to religious beliefs. As the modern scientific method began to develop and become more sophisticated, anything that called on and some kind of unseen force, anything that was basically considered some kind of superstition, was very firmly cut out of the nascent scientific practice. There was quite a solid core of health practitioners, if you like, of the day and thinkers and early biologists who tried to hang on to the idea. But it's round about that time and we see, we seem to get the first big schism, if you like. Are, are so. we going to blame that on Rene Descartes also, because he's our favorite villain? Um, we can blame Descartes up to a point. I mean, it's I mean, where did the schism happen is what I'm it, looking It for. started with Descartes' thought. It did. But what's less known is that around the turn of the 20th century, so late 19th, early 20th, vitalism still survived as an idea among, for example, biologists. One of the really important things, I think, to realise when we talk about these terms is that historical context is absolutely everything. So when we kind of um, shoo it away as a nonsense idea, we need to remember that very serious people were trying to explore and see what the meaning of it actually was. Um, and so there was a reaction around that time against what biologists saw as an overly mechanistic approach. You couldn't just simply cut up the cell or 
the organism into neat little compartments because it didn't work like that. They could see that the whole was clearly more than the sum of its parts. And vitalism was a convenient word, but it had become associated with so much negativity that there were a lot of philosophical debates about, shall we call it something else? Are there other definitions? And so you got words like organicism and holism floating around, mm -hmm. trying to, differ, to break away from vitalism, which has always kind of had the smear, if you like, of um, a belief, a spiritual practice, and there was no way that could be acceptable. So you, you talked about vitalism still being vital to biologists. Uh, would you not say self-assembly is an example of vitalism? Well, you see, you and I can say that. But if we get into, you and I could possibly argue that. Others might call that organicism. There's mm -hmm. some really, really fine lines of definition in the sort of whole philosophical debate about all of this. So eventually word, um, the idea of organicism or holism became more acceptable because they kind of rested only on the basis of what science had been able to find. Mm -hmm. Whereas vitalism had held pretty bad company in many people's eyes and that made it guilty by association and therefore to be sidelined. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there's a lot of invisible things in the world. We just don't know how many because we can't see them. That's true. 50, 60 years ago, if you said, I'm going to wrap a bunch of wire around a magnet, a huge magnet, and I'm going to spin it around you at incredible speeds and take a picture of your insides, people would say, well, that's crazy. But today we have MRIs. That's why I make a point of studying these things. And I make a point of kind of looking at the detail of the word and the meaning. Because yeah, it's absolutely true that when very, very early x-rays or very, very early scientific instruments were being developed and explored and so on, the potential for what, how much of the invisible could be made visible, that the limits were, uh, were unknown. And so- right. It was perfectly justifiable to think that one day we'd be able to measure consciousness or that we'd be able to, um, I don't know, uh, speak with unseen realms or something, because we uh, here we are, we, we, we've taken the first step, who knows where the limits are. And so in the spirit of early scientific inquiry, I think it's a little bit harsh to kind of think that, oh, they just they were just primitives who believed nonsense up to that point. I, I just got a book. I haven't read it yet. It's on that stack back there. You can see behind me. Anyway, it's a book on medieval science, which are two words that you don't normally hear together. And it's called The Light Ages. Hmm. Because, of course, I, I, just, I just watched a documentary on how they're trying to save Notre Dame. Of course, they had science back in medieval times. They couldn't have built Notre Dame if they didn't have science. So this whole idea that science is a product of the Renaissance, uh, you know, because they were so awesome, is kind of um, an incomplete story. It is. It is. And again, I mean, this is why, what the areas that I'm most um, deeply interested in. We have a split in what we consider knowledge and how we get to it, you know, mm -hmm. the big the big long word is epistemology, but yes. <laughs> that's a mouthful. But the, 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 the difference in how they thought about um, science and how we think about science doesn't make them any less sophisticated. It's just that we've shifted, we've got uh, the values, the things we value have shifted and mm -hmm. the things we, we have to work with have shifted. So, and, and that is what changes the way we validate or even build our knowledge at all. So if you look at the pendulum swing 
uh, as tends to happen, it's a constant repeating pattern in human existence. If we go way over here, we go way over there. But it seems that, at least for me, being in integrative medicine, that there's this stronger middle ground movement towards trying to integrate these things in a way in a way that's inclusive, but not so inclusive that everything loses all meaning, which is my great fear. But you know, how do we begin to develop greater discernment and critical thinking? Oh, now that's the big one, isn't it? Yeah. Critical thinking, I mean, okay, let me, let me start somewhere. Let me go back. If we take as given that for something to be, let's say scientifically acceptable, it has to ultimately be measurable. I think the test really is to see, is it, plausible in rational terms or do we have to reach out for belief and do things on faith alone i think there's a distinction there there's an important distinction um it's one Could thing you give to a say, practical example okay let me go with a mind-body connection sure um sure. because that's a, that's a really big one um so let's say that the mind-body connection if we rewind to the 70s You'd mostly, in the context of healthcare, find that discussion in the alternative or fringe sections. Psychology as a field, as a discipline, was gaining, and psychiatry with it, recognition rapidly, but it still had a lot of what we call magical beliefs as well, that it shed pretty quickly, to be honest. But if you, went, if you looked at mainstream biomedicine, the mind-body connection was a load of woo. It was considered a load of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now, so we're, we're, we're familiar with Wu. Yeah. I've only gone as far back as the 70s. Uh, That's far enough. Fast forward, though, to today, and words like psychosomatic, words like biopsychosocial mm -hmm. are not only deeply embedded in the understanding of mainstream healthcare, the biopsychosocial model is being um, sort of recommended as best uh, practice in primary care. Now, how well it's implemented is a different story altogether. But so, and if you step step off to the side, you see that some holistic practitioners were proposing that all along. But that's mm. an, that's another conversation. Yeah. So, now, I, I've always said psychosomatic shouldn't be a dirty term, but I remember very yeah. distinctly in the seventies. Oh, that's <laughs> psychosomatic. I mean, that was just like you're a bastard child. Get away from me. Yeah. 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 Mm. And even the word psychogenic. Yeah, that was that was trying to rehabilitate the term. It's, it's, it's kind of yeah, it's about it in the ICD-10 codes. Uh, yeah, and all of hospital. that. Yeah, and all of that. But what you have, what you have in the development of understanding that has led us to the say biopsychosocial model, whose root is also in the seventies. So someone was taking it seriously. That also started in the seventies. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the work towards it, and it started with ethics, to be honest. Um, what you have there is an example of the evidence gradually building and no recourse to some kind of invisible higher power, but a better understanding of the human psyche and its interaction with the body. If, on the other hand, um, somebody's going to claim that, okay, therefore, by extension, if I bring you my magical crystal and I tell you to focus all your intent on it, you're going to be miraculously healed there we step into the realm of nonsense i'm not wishing to offend anyone uh the root it's the okay realm, it's the a podcast they're supposed to offend science. people yeah. okay oh that's fine the realm of <laughs> nonsense. um the and the way to tell the difference quite honestly is 
if something, how, how do you tell something is pseudoscience? If there is no way to disprove it, if there is no way to demonstrate that it doesn't work and therefore you're expected to take it on faith, if it's something that cannot be uh, subjected to experimentation and cannot be expected to mm-hmm. fail, whether or not you want it to fail doesn't matter. The point is, if it cannot be put into that context, um, then you're probably looking at woo. Because I'm always here, oh, I did this thing and it really worked. Okay, you got a result. How long did the result last? Was it something sus- that could be sustained in a reasonable manner? Because I, I think any kind of novel intervention has the potential to give the body a positive response while the body tries to figure out, oh, what is this novel thing? But But did it last? Maybe I'm getting off track here, but is that a is that an okay benchmark to use in terms of consistency of results? Well, duration may or may not be because if you think about uh, pharmaceutical support for some conditions, they don't have perhaps a lengthy duration or they need constant sort of medication. That doesn't mean that they don't in one or another sense, get rid of pain, for example, um, and so on and so forth. Whether it's just masking a symptom is another conversation. What, what other inputs, what other variables have you got that may be impacting that duration once, you, once your, client, your patient goes home? Right, uh, right. Well, there we get to the biopsychosocial. You could have three different clinicians doing the exact same procedures on three different people, but their ability to connect with another person. That's, yeah can play into the results. And that, that happens across the board in almost every profession. But even with, I mean, I'm just thinking there's um, a particular case that I like to use to illustrate the use of acupuncture specifically for trigeminal neuralgia. Now this one is extremely close to home. My partner suffers from intense trigeminal neuralgia. He's been Sorry. heavily medicated for the last year and a half. And in our desperation to ditch the meds because they're affecting quality of life very badly, we've looked into um, acupuncture and the studies, the evidence available is overwhelming. Very large sample sizes, many replicable studies. Apparently acupuncture can do an equal, if not better job to the medication in terms of uh, pain control. The thing being that the chronicity of the condition affects how long the result may last. So the longer you've had it untreated, the lo- perhaps the more acupuncture sessions you'll need, or you'll need a repetition a year down the line, 18 months down the line, something like that. So I don't know that I would necessarily, and again, of course, it matters. It depends what's causing it in the first place with him. Yeah. It's probably um, dental issues with others. It may be the sort of natural, <laughs> what gravity does. You know, yeah, so- there's that. So it's, it's, I think it's more complex mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say than the duration. So I, I, so it may be more condition specific uh, in my own bias. Yeah. I mean, my own bias as a, as a holistic biomechanic, that's what it says outside my door. No, it doesn't say that it should um, is, is that there's, we should be able to solve your problem in a reasonable number of treatments to the point where it becomes more self-sustaining. That doesn't mean you might not come in for tune-ups. And yeah. I'm talking about the the normative here, not like people with Ehlers-Danlos or people with uh, oh. a, a debilitating or deteriorating condition that you yes. can keep at bay with regular treatments versus uh, having them fall off the cliff. That's Those are different. I'm just talking about the general norm for chronic pain and, and physical dysfunction. Uh, I, I am a firm believer that most of those things should be able to be remedied 
uh, without having to do whatever it is three times a week for nine months and still feel like you haven't gotten any results. Well, that, I mean, there's so many variables that could feed into that, of course, but in terms of... Um, so so to kind of go back to vitalism versus biomedicine, you were talking about the, the biologists tended to have more of a vitalistic streak with them. But what was happening in the bigger picture of medicine with the development, I'm presuming, in let's say the 1800s of things like surgery and pharmacology, they were looking more at the body as like a brick and mortar thing that could be repaired and patched back together like you would a house. Well, and it wasn't just the biologists. I mean, this this debate, you see, never really went away. I think what you had was the, the, the classic divide between perhaps the people doing the research and the people who would be uh, philosophizing a bit more about it and trying to um, find, uh, see that what are the limits of plausibility and the, the on-the-ground clinicians who were most often relying on experience and little else. And that's something that actually is still true today to a large degree. Um, the degree to which clinical experience trumps research. So, you know, the, the fact that these two sides don't always talk to each other or aren't always on the same wavelength, I think goes back a very, very long way. The mechanistic and ultimately reductionist perspectives of body as machine, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's very convenient and it's also cost effective and it's also easier to process well it's cost effective in the short term not in the long term perhaps Um, and when you start looking at it that way and you also think early 20th century is when major medical schools in the states especially are getting funding perhaps from certain centers and so on it 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 starts to acquire you know there's an economic character to the to where the emphasis was given as well the discussions being had we need to look at the bigger picture sociopolitically as well you see. And, and sociologically, because I have yet to find a single educational program or documentary on the body that doesn't start with a variation of the body as the most incredible machine yeah. ever created. And it's like, it's not a machine. Yeah, yeah. And language matters a lot. Language matters a lot. Because just this word vitalism, like I, I said, when you asked me at the beginning, you know, it's, it's a dirty word now. And it's because it's kept bad company. <laughs> hey, vitalism, you might want to look to some of these adjectives you hang out with here, because they're not they're not helping you at all. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so do you think vitalism can be rehabbed or does it need a rebranding? Um, I think it should be left alone as a representative of a historical epistemology, school okay. of thought, mm-hmm. um, which has its limits, but which is valuable because it has informed where things went next and where things went next were basically holism. What holism essentially represented was a kind of shedding of this um you know the sort of more woo if you like aspects of there's this mystical sort of um spiritual force interconnecting all of nature but Mm -hmm. it did hold space for the whole is more than the sum of its parts you may think of being you may think i'm not being serious here but i am at least halfway non-serious when i say this but i think we started to change that in the 70s with star wars you know, it and people been. went, oh, the force, the thing that connects <laughs> everything else, right? It's like it kind of brought that concept into the mainstream in a way that that 
affected everybody. You know what? Pop culture is massively important in how we think about and the conversations happening, you know, at home um, in downtime are equally going to affect how people think about things in their work time. It's all important. It's all interconnected. It's all entwined. And it, it may be that questions that became taboo to ask in the scientific context in 60, 80, 100 years ago can be asked when we have the language for them and the basis for them. So who knows? Yeah. I, okay. The problem I've found with research is there seems to be very little impetus for research for research's sake. When I moved from having my own clinic to actually having a, a practice in an outpatient clinic that's part of a larger university and a larger system of hospitals, I was really excited at the opportunity to, to meet up and, and do some research with people to find out what we can find out. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to one of the neuroscientists. So what I had proposed was that we just get together with, say, six people, put the portable EKG, EEG uh, brainwave thing on them and do the same procedure on all six people. In this case, I was purporting to do in the anatomy trains model, the superficial back line. Uh, oh, and then we could contrast it with the superficial front line. And let's just see how maybe that changes the brain, uh, the brainwave functions we're gonna be looking at on these six people. And, and there, there was no impetus to, for him to want to get involved because it was just research to find things out. It wasn't research to solve a problem or have, if we have an X, what Y intervention get this? And my thought is let's, let's start creating some baseline data with fascial manipulate, with doing fascial manipulations on the body and, and see what kind of measurements we get and what that might suggest. And then we could do something more robust, but I couldn't even get something as simple as that off the ground. Because that, I think that comes back to, uh, a lot of things it comes back to training i mean the whole scientific method really is outcomes based so once people are into that mindset um and then you've got all the practicality such as well how are you going to get funding for something or how, how are you going to yeah. present you've got this was not going to be a lot of funding for this it's yeah some time really yeah yeah i know but you're you're people are kind of conditioned into uh, thinking that there has to be, um, you know, you've got to have your null hypothesis and you've got to have your, um, you've got to start with the question that you're going to either prove or disprove. Yeah, I'm just kind of a, let's take this barn and fix it up and put on a show kind of guy. That's yeah, just me. Yeah. Whereas what you're saying is, well, let's see how far we might be able to go with it, which is essentially a pilot study and, you know, let, or pre mm -hmm. preliminary study and then see from there if there's even anything for us to look at. Um, but if you can't get somebody or a researcher to see further, uh, for the potential, then it'll be hard to convince them, I guess. Yeah. And I think also when you're doing something that's more on the edge, there could be a very practical reason to not do it because if you are a serious researcher, you don't want to be perceived as on the edge of woo. And I don't care, but that's because <laughs> that's not what I do all day long. But for these researchers that I tried to talk to, it is what they do all day long. So they wouldn't want something that we might find and publish to be taken the wrong way. Well, that wouldn't happen if it was solidly put together, because obviously, again, what you're talking about is the preliminary research, whereas yeah. um, never make it to publication if it didn't have a proper structure, if it didn't have a proper research question, if it didn't have a proper methodology behind it, it would it never reach publication, I guess. Um, I mean, now, nowadays, modern neuroscience is doing a lot of 
edgy stuff. Yeah, maybe 50 years ago would have been seen on the edge of Ooh, I doubt that now mm-hmm. that's the case. And, and, and it depends, you know, is your um, friendly or not so friendly neuroscientist, you know, mm-hmm. what, what's their particular area of focus and what, and what beliefs, again, underpin their training? Because it does come back to that ultimately. You you get you get um, researchers and clinicians who do see a big a slightly bigger picture and do see an interdisciplinarity and the potential to really you know um, take things a few steps forward. And you find others who simply want to stay very much um, um, by the book and simply replicate or move things forward by just an inch and. Mm-hmm um not take a stride or yeah. not try to take a stride because it means they might fail that in itself is a factor i think yeah. that's what is exciting about this movement we'll see if it actually continues to grow into what's now being termed integrative medicine which back yeah. in the 70s would have been alternative yep i yep. would assume yep. you know and you can at the integrative conferences I've been to, you can talk with these doctors about your soul mm-hmm. and it's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I had a student ask me once how I keep from absorbing other people's energy. And my initial take on a question like that would not be one I would want to say in public. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, but there is such a thing as transference and countertransference. Mm-hmm. That does happen. And, and it's a thing, it can't be measured, but it does. So there's more of that invisible stuff. Because it was an integrative medicine uh, thing, I, I took the student seriously and didn't just do my usual biased knee-jerk woo reaction. And I realized the way I do it is art. It's the art I have in my space. So as an artist, you might appreciate that. Well, it's funny because I have a lot of doctor friends, mostly biomedical doctors, mm-hmm. And um, some of them are hospital doctors. And I mean, you know, they're on call almost 24 seven, some of them. And um, their only escape is art. And some of them are incredible. I mean, they're almost obsessive collectors. Time and again, I've had this conversation, especially with one of them who's a very close friend and who's very kindly bought a lot of my art, um, which is, um, he, sa- he, sa- he says to me, to me, this is therapy. He spends every waking hour surrounded by beautiful things. And that for him is his sanity, uh, quite, you know, when he's, when he's not at work. Um, so I totally understand that. And um, I think it's very common. And as an artist, I'm very grateful. <laughs> that that should be the case but I think you know that it's I can just see that the the question about how do you deal with it I mean you can explain it transference transference counter transference you can explain it in different ways but the um emotional charge that comes with dealing with people who are unwell with people's pain with people's illness um you know you can it, it, that can be expressed in the coldest of terms but but it's very very well documented i mean did you know that by the third year of medical school it's actually been found now and um, medical educators are trying to do something about it that medical students tend to reach a peak of depersonalization when it comes to patients explain Um, explain that it's fascinating. Um, there's a paper, I mean, I can send you the, the study. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely fascinating. 
that um, I mean, so they did questionnaires and it was a, more of a sociological type uh, um, research study on medical students. And they found that um, by their third year, they had developed this form of detachment, very depersonalized de perspective of the patient or well, I say, you know, I know you use this in the, in the States, the term client as well, but mm -hmm. this is in a hospital setting. So the patient. Yeah, oh, we, yeah, we use patients all the time. Yeah, yeah. Same thing, so. um, to um, which it, it was obviously a defense mechanism of some sort, but it was apparently uh, because then they started messing around with, the, you know, trying to see whether different educational approaches would change this. And it did. First of all, that the um, initial encounter with the dissection mm -hmm. served to kind of um what's the word i'm, I'm looking for compartmentalize or isolate yeah push away depersonalize yeah. objectify or, objectify the patient as an other yeah i keep thinking rayfy but that's too yeah exactly okay. exactly objectify mm -hmm. actually is the best uh, one then by the third year they'd kind of learned to sort of deal with it their, their, their whole training is so compartmentalized anyway it's just bodily systems right so, um, and for some reason all of that just tended to reach a peak in the third year it seemed like a, this weird pivotal moment then when they were put into sort of work experience situation intern situations um did also impact their um sort of bedside manner or their behavior or whatever not you know across the board not a hundred percent um but, but in large enough numbers to be noticeable concerning, to be concerning and also because so much research has now been done into patient outcomes and how the um well the bedside manner essentially even in an emergency setting but certainly in terminal settings and in really yes. difficult circumstances what a great impact it has on outcomes um that they're actively now looking for ways to turn this around within the educational arena and one of the ways of doing this is helping medical students prepare to deal with the uncertainty and the messiness and the ugliness of real clinical practice and of course you know again this is in a hospital setting i'm talking right, about right right well that, that goes back to uh when we were talking before the show um i mentioned a book called complications by the surgeon atoka wandi one of the sections of his book is called uncertainty mm -hmm. and another section is called mystery and the whole idea that this is a skill and he, he writes this beautiful passage about the first time he tried to do a cardiac catheter by himself and how bad he was at it mm. and how bad he felt for the person he was trying to give the cardiac cath to. And now he can do it without blinking, but it took 50, 60, 70, 80 of them to develop that facility. And I think that's with any good clinician. Do you think there's sort of this idea that you, you get through this, you get through the schooling process and then the learning just begins? Kind of, kind but of. But we don't really... I think people, there's this idea, maybe you come out of medical school as a doctor and you've got it all down. There is a sociological aspect to that. And there can be an arrogance that comes with tra any training. You see it in every single field. I've seen it across the board and, you know, and we see it in children. 
even mm-hmm. where you know it's cute in kids and we don't really recognize what it can turn <laughs> into um but you know when you've yes. got a 12 year old i well i don't know in the, the, the state system okay but go in, for in it sorry right. this is this is an international podcast so we're good. okay so but whatever age you learn algebra okay i don't know mm-hmm. what age they teach algebra nowadays you know you've got a kid who's just mastered their first um equations and they've got a little brother or sister you know a couple of years younger and it's the oh i can do this and i'm all grown up and you can't that phenomenon from childhood stays with us for a very long time yes it does i've seen it i've seen it in my own students it's mm-hmm. um it's a mild i'm going to use the wrong term so any um okay. experts listening please forgive me but um because i i'm i've got two languages arguing in my head at the moment okay but um um, it's a little bit like Messiah syndrome, which um, is kind of, well, I, I know everything now and I can go out and save the world and I want to tell everybody what I've learned. And yes. it, it's, it's a particular... It's got a messianic fervor to it, sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it in second year veterinary students. I've seen it in third year architecture students. I've seen it all over the place. I've and I'm I've been guilty of this myself mm-hmm. um, yeah. in my own studies, where I just suddenly thought that correcting everybody was a good idea, <laughs> and I have seen it in young mm. doctors in a hospital setting. Yeah, I think it's endemic well. to just the human condition. I believe if you will. it is. is one of the solutions they're looking at. Going back to these medical students and in this depersonalization thing that happens, uh, what we refer to here in the states as supervision groups. That, I believe, is helpful, but not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is because if the members of the group lack the skills for dealing with certain scenarios, and if their collective training, if their training in common is such um, that they aren't really in a position to process things beyond either just complaining to each other, being on, you know, mm-hmm. being honest and open. So if you've got a, a yeah. discussion going on, and I actually, I've actually, I saw this in another paper quite recently, which was feedback from physical therapists about a, application of the biopsychosocial uh, model. It just stuck with me because they did a survey, but they also did outcome measures. They did, they did, they, they measured things a few different ways. But they also had quotes from the people who contributed to the study. And one of them was, um, oh, yes, when, when it comes to difficult patients who just won't cooperate, I really don't know what to do. I, I feel like tearing my hair out. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Right, okay, right, but that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. the sentiment. And it shocked me. It shocked me because I was I thought so. The whole problem is the patient who won't listen to you, because, but you think because you know better. <laughs> and yeah. so. Yeah. When it when if if in the, in a, in a group in a sort of as you say informal or formal supervision group setting, there's no feedback, no solutions, no skills, no additional skills offered, in order to deal with that. What are you doing? All you're going to create is an echo chamber. They will those will those skills ever be transferred? And that's mm-hmm. that's the reason you see why they're yeah. now integrating humanities based skill sets and learning into medical courses and this is happening all over the states body talk will return after the break welcome back to body talk 
Today's guest is Sasha Shetau. There's something else that I keyed on when I started reading your work was this phrase I'd never seen before, but it instantly lit me up. And that was medical humanities. Yeah. So why don't you explain what that is and what that means? To me, it's paradise. <laughs> okay. It, it sounds like a place I want to visit. That's for sure. So yeah. tell me your vision of paradise. Because of the realization of a lot of these factors, it has to do, you know, um, there have been humanities scholars from a lot for a long time who've been saying that medical students would benefit in terms of their um, advanced critical skills, advanced thinking skills from more contact with the humanities. But that, you know, that's quite theoretical. So it's t- it tends to be the first thing that will get cut. Well, t- taking the arts out of everything is endemic and. Well, Schools here in the States, it's horrible. Well, here is in, in Europe as well, unfortunately. However, um, there have now been sufficient studies to demonstrate that this isn't just about soft skills. It's not just about better learning skills, mm-hmm. but it's about being able to deal with the everyday situation and being able to provide much better care for the patient, because there are transferable skills from within the humanities. I'll, I'll give you a hands-on example here, mm-hmm. um, because I was teaching this just this week, but I was teaching it to teenagers this time around, which is basic characterization in a novel. What is the beauty of characterization and understanding it when you're reading something? It's that you get to understand people with different characters who you may never meet in real life, especially if you live in a small town. So simple reading short stories, reading novels, reading books, um, you get to meet people. And by meeting them, and the second thing is that because, exactly because of the way characters are presented in literature, any literature actually, um, you don't get a detailed description of somebody's personality. You're not going to get a psych report. You're not gonna get a psychometric report Mm -hmm. on that person what you can get are little clues and little signs and the author may decide to tell you what somebody's wearing and you don't learn their name until the fourth chapter or you get to know that perhaps they've got a piece of jewelry that's very important to them that will tell you something about their character so you as a reader have to put together a jigsaw puzzle in your head of who the person is and that's something you do without thinking and we do it all the time when we meet new people it's just if we don't meet many new people, then we tend to get very set in our ways of judgment. So what literature gives is a, a way to develop the skill of actually reading a person through a variety of different clues. Because you, the one day you meet somebody from, you know, a totally different background to yourself and you've no idea what to go on. But reading about something similar will help you have a point of reference. It'll have you- yes. a- Good movies in visual presentations can do that too, because there's a lot you can convey about character without dialogue. Exactly. exactly. And if you're constantly meeting and treating new people, it's a good skill to begin to develop. Well, it's, it's critical actually, because what then happens is, and it, it, you can do it equally well with cinema. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, but both film, the film and the written word each have their own kind of advantages. Yeah, I didn't mean to get you off base. I just... Yeah, yeah. no, that's cool. That's both cool. hand, but both hand. Because reading is is the concentration factor as well and decoding what the, the written mm-hmm. word is. No, it's a very different brainular experience. One of the things that I've noticed that 
really has bugged me over the last 10 years. I kind of did a deep dive into fascist science. I've immersed myself in this for so long that I've actually had to learn how to read fiction again. Uh -huh. I'm just so inundated and I feel like I'm starting to lose something by not reading fiction anymore. I totally understand that. I mean, ever since I finished my PhD, I discovered to my great sadness, actually, that, and especially in the last uh, five, six years, um, I used to be, I mean, I used to be such a bookworm. I would eat books up quite literally. Oh yeah, I'd read three in a weekend. That was, that yeah. was a good weekend for me. But it was only fiction. And once I got to advanced academia, it just, it, like, I finally understood my dad who was always buying me books, but never reading them himself. I'd kind of say to him, but why are you giving me this to read when you would enjoy it too? And he would say to me, I didn't understand back in the day, and now I do. Mm -hmm. I haven't got enough space in my brain left. And by the time I'm done writing, I feel like such a zombie. I just want to watch Cowboys and be done. But and I found myself falling into exactly the same pattern. And mm -hmm. I'm miserable. I managed to pick up a good detective it well. again um, mm -hmm. recently. And I'd forgotten the sheer joy of it. The sheer yeah. joy. I mean, I literally read two in a weekend. What got me back to reading fiction is this guy who is British. Matt Haig, are you familiar with him? No. He's, no, he's, I recognize the name. I've seen his problem. Yeah, he's a lovely, lovely writer. And he's so good at character. I like unusual scenarios that make you look at normal things in different ways. And he is a writer yeah. is very, very good at that. Um, I will definitely look it up yeah. then. That's his his most recent one is called The Midnight Library. And it's about this, this woman in her early 30s who commits suicide. And she wakes up in the Midnight Library. Ooh. And the librarian, uh, there's one book. It's, it's the book of her regrets of all the times that she sh could have done X, but she did Y. And this library is full of books of every moment in her life that catalogs what that life would have been if she had made a different choice. And yeah. she has to explore these books. It's kind of like her purgatory. And I think I read a review of It's that delicious. It's just absolutely delicious. That, that would be too triggering. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, doctors listening to this podcast, read that book. The thing about fiction is, and I'll say the other thing for science fiction, I use science fiction, ethics. I use science fiction to teach, actually you can teach what pseudoscience is through using science fiction. You can teach everything. What's some um, of your favorite science fiction to teach from? It's bits and pieces because I'm, I'm dealing with a generation for that particular batch of teaching that doesn't read anymore. It's that they're, they're, they're digital natives. <sighs> Yeah. And getting them to read anything, you know, I, I was trying to get them to read Frankenstein. Okay. Which is not particularly exciting science. But did you explain to them that it was the autobiography of, of Albert Einstein's father, Frank Einstein? I didn't, I didn't to, even to entice them to read the book. Uh, no. Okay. Just a thought. You might <laughs> want to try it sometime. I don't think they'll even know who Einstein was. <laughs> oh God. You're depressing me, Sasha. <laughs> um, it is highly depressing. It is highly depressing. I love younger people. I make a point of always having one teen class. If, you know, as I have this year, I don't have time for the teaching. I'm doing it anyway, because I just want that contact with young people. For me, it feeds my soul. As <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just gets me away from all the seriousness, to be honest. But at the same time, I actually feel that when you get them at that age, their vision is so incredibly clear. It's never going to be that clear again, as it is at about 16.
I feel that if I can get to them then and just show them a little bit of their potential mm-hmm. and a little bit of what the world could hold, then mm-hmm. I will, there will be a few fewer horrible people around me when I'm old. Um, seeing the little light go on over their head with the most random possible things. Mm-hmm. Um, like just um, yesterday, was it yesterday on Friday? I was teaching them. Uh, we also do, I also teach them public speaking skills. They're Greek kids and I'm doing it all in English. So this is skills for their future, but I'm only doing like the heavy duty stuff uh, with them. And um, seeing them realize from, from, t- from being quivering wrecks at the idea of getting up even in front of their own classmates to say a few words, mm-hmm. seeing them realize that they could put together a talk with a beginning, middle and an end. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the most beautiful thing in the world to realize that I can do that. I actually have something to say. I, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't exchange for all the university posts in the world. Um, because the rest of the time I'm teaching university students, I'm teaching adults, I'm teaching a bunch of other people. So, but this for me is, yeah, it, it, it's it's the hope for the future. It's so much easier when they're still young and still bright eyed. For me, that's therapy anyway. But the reason I bring it up is because science fiction, it, it's the safest space in the world to explore the extremes of human nature. Yeah. And I think it's taken the place of the ancient morality place. Probably has. I think it absolutely has, because one of the reasons I always do that with my students who are then called upon to write these really difficult adult level essays on all sorts of ethical concerns, uh, because that's the exam they take. But the preparation they normally get is learning by rote, and I refuse to do that. So I just threw out textbooks and made up Mm -hmm. my own system, Um, which they love and which the uh, school owners love, which is great. So it, it's, it, I wanted to kick off their, their critical thinking skills. And where else am I going to do that if not with science fiction? You know, we've talked to, uh, and, and the thing is, the extremes that it can take you to are the kind of extremes, I'm going to come back to the medical humanities, that some people are really going to encounter in the work setting and they're going yes. to be woefully unprepared for it. But mm-hmm. if they have explored that in a safe space, which is, in a, the literary context, mm-hmm. and they've seen the extreme, the extremes that people can go to when pushed into an extreme corner, and even their own reactions, because they they don't know their own stre- extreme stress reactions until they're in that place, and so the self care that they will need down the line is something that they can put the foundations yeah. down for when before they get burned or burned out. In my twenties. I, I can't tell you how many times when I would be encountering new situations in work, in life with people, particularly with people, and it'd be like, oh, this is like that thing in that book or in that movie. And and I could almost adopt the persona or the character of, of someone else to try to find a way to deal with it myself. I think as with all young people, I sometimes maybe made some mistakes by over-identifying with the fictional character who wasn't me, but it was a useful way to actually learn how to navigate through the world was having like this backlog of fiction to help me muddle my way through it a little bit better. It gives you a script and it exposes you to situations that you're never going to be exposed to in one lifetime alone i mean uh, you know and it's exactly it's exactly as you say it gives you some kind of script to follow and after all what is all learning but sort of creating the groundwork and foundations for putting something into practice and when as we go through life um it's one thing you know if you're going through life in a non-public role 
where you don't really have to encounter too many people. But when your job is actually healing, then, um, well, uh, <laughs> there are some big questions surrounding what people are doing in that role if they're not prepared to explore the, you know, what is it to be human? What is it to heal a human? What is, is it's a very intimate thing, healing. If you were putting together the ultimate medical humanities course, <laughs> which I'm sure your brain is already working on anyway, but what would that include, Sasha Shaitao? It would include, hmm, what would it include? Um, okay, so two ounces of philosophy and three ounces of... <laughs> I, I just, now we're getting into alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, alchemy is very badly misunderstood. And, oh, no, I uh, wasn't slamming alchemy. I wasn't slamming I know, alchemy. I know, but a lot of people, uh, a lot of people will, but... Um, yeah, it's yeah, okay. If we get the chance, we can go that way. Later. Yeah, so let's give, give us the rehabilitated view of alchemy. Um, which answer do you want first? Oh God, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. I've only got um, one mouth and one brain. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <not> <laughs> and then you have multiple languages bouncing around in that brain. Um, well, let's do the alchemy thing first because alchemy is in essence about transformation, which is what people want when they want healing. Okay, so first up, let me put my historian's hat on uh, to say that alchemy is often waved away as primitive or a pseudoscience that you can say it's early pre-modern science. Any other designation is actually inaccurate historically. So please listen to us historians, we know a thing or two. <laughs> Secondly, in order to try to rehabilitate it as an object of learning, it's often been claimed for the physico-chemical sciences as a precursor, which is all true. But that essentially threw out all the rest of it. There's a lot of things the alchemists didn't quite get right. And that reflects their understanding of certain scientific processes of the time, their lack yeah, of internet. And the equipment and so they so had forth. access to, all those things. That said, it's a pre-enlightenment science. And by uh, being a pre-enlightenment science, again, we're going to go back to that big word, epistemology. Mm -hmm. It's a method of healing that demands us to conceive of the human organism body and soul and the and nature as reflections of one another and the idea is that when the chemist stroke alchemist is working or experimenting in his lab he has to be undergoing um, a similar spiritual transformation in himself in order to fully achieve what he's after. It's a very humble kind of way to go about mm -hmm. recognizing that as I'm trying to learn more about nature and um, help nature perhaps refine itself to the next stage, because that's kind of one of the axioms of alchemy, um, I also need to be doing this myself. Well, it's yes, it's about turning your own base lead into something of greater value, i.e. gold. Yeah. And it was right. an inner, it was an inner thing it, it was wasn't an outer thing and it was never about making gold so yeah. back to the sasha shaitao course for the medical humanities um i yeah i'm a stickler for um clear critical thinking which has to do as much with accurate use of words and accurate um because clear articulation reflects clear thought processes so mm -hmm. there's yes. a, an element of philosophical training, I think, that um, is needed for, you know, people to then engage with understanding. I'm practicing medicine. I'm learning to become a medical practitioner. What does that actually mean? So there you need 
just a, you know, a smidgen of history to kind of understand where you're standing. It's not going to help you, you know, in your crisis moment. It's going to help how you pick and choose decisions. It's going to hone your decision-making process. Okay. Um, that's why you need a, a touch of philosophy, a touch of history, because that helps to deepen those particular thinkings, is higher order thinking skills, essentially. Um, literature, absolutely, for a million reasons, both um, patient encounters, self-care, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with crit critical care, dealing with the really ugly stuff of medicine, which is dying people and pain, people in pain and their weeping families because how does anyone deal with that? I've been on the receiving end of that and I have seen doctors who should have their licenses burned, I'm ashamed to say. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a particular bugbear about it. Uh, um, it's a fine one to have, you're not, yeah. you're not alone in that. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And art, visual arts, uh, photography. And for visual art, beautiful sub-discipline that sort of a sister to narrative medicine, which is called graphic medicine, which has to do with using art, both, both doctors and patients, in fact, using it to elicit from the patient how they perceive their situation or condition or whatever it is they're experiencing, but also for the physician to be able, perhaps, to create anything from a mind map to just a cartoon about how they're feeling that day, process something that otherwise they might be carrying around all week. Yeah, That, that sounds infinitely uh, faster than say journaling. Cause I know at the end of say a really grueling day at the clinic is, is an outpatient clinic. I've been working since the middle of May. So during the COVID time and those first three, four months were hard for myriad reasons. You know, the last thing I want to do is journal about my day when I get home. Are you kidding me? But mm -hmm. to sit down for 10 minutes and draw a cartoon or something yeah. just to get it out of my system, crumpled up and throw it away or stick it in a book somewhere, that's that's great. The graphic medicine idea, I, I know a practitioner, there's this chart that everybody, massage therapist, chiropractor, whatever, it's the, the man, person, front and back, and you're supposed to color in where it hurts. Yes. Okay. yes he did yes. that one better. He had four or five different colored pencils. Red was for one quality. Blue was for another quality. Green was for another quality. That's so you could color in That's with that. Yes. And then two or three visits later, he would have them do another one. And then two or three visits later, he would have them do another one. And they'd say, hey, let's look at your baby pictures. They could see their own progress in the chart that they made and how their own body was changing. Well, I mean, you know, think the classic question that perhaps, um, I don't know if you asked, but I know many do, which is, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how's your pain? Uh, oh, I hate that question. I'm supposed to ask that question. I hate asking that question. I know, and, and people I know. hate answering that question. <laughs> and if they answer it, what do you really know, and how do you measure it anyway? And it's it's problematic in the extreme, and we know this. But what you're sort of uh, describing there is, I mean, massive improvement that should be adopted across the board. I think utterly brilliant. Sasha, you've brought an incredible quality to our chat this afternoon. I have a feeling like we just barely. I don't even want to say we skimmed the surface. We just kind of ran our fingers lightly over the surface and found out there are lots of things on that surface. It may be premature. I just think that what I'm seeing, and it's something that I'm addressing directly in work I'm doing at the moment, I need some intensive research. A good number of professions that use, we used to call alternative. Now, maybe some of them are integrative. Some of them are still under the mm -hmm. cam. 
these are all uh, practices and professions that have defined themselves, that still define themselves using exclusionary language and exclusionary thinking. And even with integrative, it's still, there's a gap, there's a space where integrative came from somewhere. It wasn't there all along, something that from the outside. So yeah. therefore there is still this sense of separation. Now, there are historical reasons for this. Um, it comes back to differences in values, differences in epistemologies and this branching of two pathways, if you like, and approaches to medicine. I'm noticing now very strongly that biomedical professions or uh, specialities are rediscovering or they're discovering in their own way, using their own language, almost as if for the first time, things that have been understood and practiced, if not, even if they don't have a sort of um, very robust evidence base behind them yet, but things that have certainly been implemented in holistic practice for an extremely long time. The longer, first of all, that the exclusionary stance remains, the more harm it's going to do because biomedicine has caught up and they're not going to need this. There's, there, there may come a time when the professions that so proudly fly the banner of alternative or whatever else they call themselves mm -hmm. are actually, they're not going to be subsumed. They're just going to be reinvented. The thing is that for as long as practitioners in those professions dabble a little bit in the sort of pseudoscientific, if more care is not taken over how these practices and professions are held together, then it will be very, very easy for them to become obsolete. Traditionally, CAM or integrative professions have an awful lot to offer mainstream medicine. That conversation is never going to happen and mainstream medicine is now ready to listen, that's the thing. The dialogue is never going to happen if one insists on defining oneself in exclusionary terms, infighting, turf wars, yeah. and um, tolerance of woo around the fringes. The thing when it comes to woo is that we need to be a little bit more careful as well what we actually do define as woo and what we don't. Yeah, and also how we speak about it. Yes. And that goes back to, again, the fineness of language. And I think if we're going to grow up these professions, they're going to need to expand their vocabulary, which I think is what you're saying. I mean, what I'll say will annoy some people and it will actually probably make some people angry. And Go for it. Okay. Um, but it's along the lines of it is time to grow up and stop acting like an a stroppy teenager. Having said that, it's one thing to say that crystal therapy is woo. It is impossible to prove or disprove it. And that's the definition of pseudoscience. Something yes. is impossible to disprove. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is another thing to argue about a practice that has been shown in clinical experience to be have some benefit, but where the science needs to catch up, but it is yet possible to disprove. So talking about okay. tr the trigger point debate, which some people are going to argue with, talking about pain science. Mm -hmm. Which some people um, are going to debate, myself included. People, yeah, we'll have different sides of that, but mm -hmm. I will just kind of ring a bell and say, is it possible to design experimentation where we can finally put this to rest? And is the reason that hasn't been designed yet because it's impossible to formulate a hypothesis or is the reason because nobody's gotten around to it or nobody can be bothered? Can we just stop and think about how we think about this stuff? And why are we having knee-jerk reactions to certain things? And why is it acceptable 
on social media in different fora <sighs> to actually call somebody names <sighs> okay when um or accuse somebody of being pseudoscientific or holding mm-hmm. um, um a belief yes or, and so on and so on and all sorts of other language we, mm-hmm. i would use that when in fact you're doing exactly the same thing <laughs> i'm not noticing and so there was there was something the other day about um this whole debate about whether manual therapy should stop entirely here i'll say are you asking the right questions because so what if it doesn't make a difference to the tissue if it makes my neck feel better if my if my father could make my neck or my cluster headache go away in 10 minutes flat yeah which he could do I really care what he's doing to the tissues? Hell no. no. And <laughs> what would be the outcome measure in that case? So, you know, happy patient, anyone? Yeah. Once upon a time, you had to be able to argue something, um, you know, with courtesy, with some form of mutual respect. And if you're going to tear someone's ideas apart, yours had to be, you know, to the letter. And as we become less skilled at expressing ourselves and articulating our thought, our thought actually goes to sleep along with the words we use. And that's, this is uh, this is a scientific fact, by the way. <laughs> this is ling- linguistics, um, applied linguistics. I'm completely on board with your linguistics, Sasha. Yeah. Um, why is it that suddenly, um, so I'm looking at basically the changing cultures within these medical communities and these mm-hmm. therapeutic communities. I'm looking at how they're expressed through language, through practice, through all of these things. And sort of saying, well, okay, here's an area that I'm attached to by, by birth yeah. as it were and um that i have a lot of time for and a lot of outsider experience in and one foot in one foot out and here's what i see is wrong and mm-hmm. um and that's that is in, of incredible value right now because when you are inside one of these professions it becomes too insider yes and, and you can't get out of no matter how big your box is or how tall your silo is you need somebody who can both and come in and take a step out and say, yeah, here's the part you're missing. And here's how to look at it differently. What can happen is you identify so closely with a profession that you love and you practice and you do that. Mm -hmm. How do you disentangle your own identity? And and it caused you to admit that actually you need to shift thinking. Anything that goes against the grain of that you take deeply personally. So it's hard to not have that knee-jerk emotional reaction. It was actually great to have two months off in the beginning of the pandemic in March and go, wow, I'm actually okay to not practice for two months. Hmm. I mean, I missed it. I wanted to get back to it. I I was happy to get back to it, but to go like, wow, I am okay within myself and as a human being to not be doing the thing I'm most closely identified with. That I think we should all be able to do that. It's something, it's, it's again, perhaps um, a particular, uh, I don't, is it a skill? Is it a matter of um, self-knowledge, self-awareness, perhaps? But don't we need that if we're actually going to profess to intervene in other people's lives and wellness, I would ask? Hey, this, is, this has been fantastic. I, I, I enjoyed this as much as I hoped I would. I'm glad. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.